As Jim Brand lay dying, his wife left him with his nurse and went into the next room to rest. She sat in the dark staring into the night. Suddenly, Mrs. Brand saw headlights come rapidly up the driveway. Oh no, she thought, I don't want visitors now, not now. But it wasn't a car bringing a visitor. It was an old hearse with maybe a half dozen small men hanging from the sides. At least, that's what it looked like. The hearse screeched to a stop. The men jumped off and stared at her, their eyes glowing with a soft yellow light like cat's eyes. She watched with horror as they disappeared into the house. An instant later, they were back, lifting something into the hearse. Then, they drove off at high speed, wheels squealing, the gravel in the driveway flying in all directions. And at that moment, the nurse came in to say that Jim Brand had died. And welcome to the Queermo cast, brought to you by death. You finally get to sleep. <laughs> that, that was a story from um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Alvin Schwartz. They were all, they were a, a set of children's spooky storybooks from the 90s, recently turned Ooh. into a movie. Um, that was called Like Cat's Eyes, and we thought it would be a, a spooky way to start the episode. As a nurse that worked the night shift, that's true. There's usually <laughs> demons in a hearse, and you're usually like, Thank God, because this patient was a one-to-one. Uh, <laughs> and a nightmare. Uh, and so finally we get to clean them up and send them. <laughs> well, Mama, should we? We're not here alone. Yes, we have a guest, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else in between and mm, outside of thank that. Thank you. <laughs> um, our special guest, the infamous, the famous... Junko! Hi! Junko! Hello! <laughs> it's great to have you here today. It's great to be so, here. <laughs> uh, Junko is our lifelong wonderful friend. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Who are you, Junko? Uh, well, my real name is Christine, but everyone calls me Junko. <laughs> and yeah, I've known both of you since like middle school, high school. Indeed. Yeah, and we didn't talk about that. Do you want us to call you Junko or Christine? Either is fine. I answer to both. <laughs> uh, Junko took Japanese in high school? or mil- High school. High school, for sure. High school. And that was her Japanese name, and I just it just had a great ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually gotten to a point where, where we know your relationship with someone based on what they call you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Junko knows my parents as well. And when they talk about Christine, I'm like, who the fuck is Christine? (laughs) Who that is? Uh, (laughs) But, oh my God. Um, Yeah, we, I was going to say, Junko, you and I met in band 
Um, seventh and eighth grade band would have probably been the first time or summer band. It was summer um, band. Because I remember we would give you a ride home. Summer band. From because we were driving, we'd see you walking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking through Old Tuna, and my mom's like, "Let's stop and give him a ride." So we'd give you a ride. And yeah, we were like the only two, only two alto saxophones. Because <laughs> most people did not <laughs> show up summer up. band. Uh, I forgot we met in band. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay, so today we're here. We're here to get spooky. We're here to get spooky. spooky. So you might remember we did one of these in uh, two years ago now almost. It's been almost two years. And, well, there hasn't been a spooky episode here in over two years. Um, well, you know what that makes me think of? This is kind of morbid, and maybe people won't appreciate it. But. there will be a lot of spooky stories i think that will emerge from covid yeah yeah i mean it's spooky that they had to bring in refrigeration trucks for all the dead bodies like just think like honestly in the few i feel like there'll be spooky films about that but maybe not yet because it's a little too it's it's still happening (laughs) It's, it's maybe a little fresh um I, I do agree with you, though. D- disasters bring out, you know, disasters and like long-term disastrous events bring out some pretty, uh, some some pretty creepy things. Um, and I think it's part of how we cope, how we like process it. So, so where are we starting today? Well, I thought I thought it would feel a little off if we didn't start with a tarot card. So I oh, did pull us a tarot card. So. Oh, I love this one. Yay. So, today I pulled us the Two of Pentacles, and I'll show it up for you quick. So, sometimes these are called the coins instead of pentacles. They are gold coins, usually with some kind of star or pentagram-shaped item on the front of them. I'll show you this card here quick as soon as I get this up. Twos are usually cards about balance, about duality, and you'll notice here there is an individual balancing on a rock, in what appears to be fabulous yoga pants with two Mm. pentacles floating above them. They have a beautiful feather boa on. They're actually bounding on a heart in high heels. And there is... Impressive. I know. And if you look (laughs) at the bottom, there is a queer protest going on for peace, which is Mm. uh, very very apropos of every time in our lives and before our (laughs) lives and probably after our lives. Um, So... Twos are usually like like I said, they're cards of balance and fluctuation um in your life. And um it's uh pentacles are usually for straight people often or for cis people or people who live a more heteronormative life. Pentacles are often read um through a very materialistic lens, like money, career, success. For a lot of queer people and people who live more on the margins of society, often the cards are read more about emotional and spiritual connection to things. Um, and so with this particular card, um, I like to I, I, I like to read from this book, Junko, This is Queering the Tarot by Cassandra Snow. Yes, I have a copy. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Ooh. That's right. I forgot you do have a copy. Um, and uh, they say the most important important keyword in this card is balance. Our whole lives we have striven to find ourselves and live in our lives as those selves no matter what was going on in the world around us. That is unequivocally 
and unequivocally a lesson in balance. When you can find yourself, your voice, and your heart at the center of the whirlwind, you have found true balance. That's what the Two of Pentacles urges the marginalized to do when it shows up. The card wants you to think through what makes you feel calm, centered, and focused no matter what is falling down around you. You need that center in the worst of times, sure. You also need it in the best of times when everything is happening quickly and unapologetically. You want to retain your place in your community, your home, your body, and so you must quickly learn to find that inner peace. That is the biggest and most important lesson in the Two of Pentacles and something every queer person needs to have tucked away in their self-care toolkit. End quote. So, thoughts. How do we feel about that? Well, that definitely fits kind of in the headspace I've been definitely this morning and for a long time. I'm not at risk for caregiver burnout. I have it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a difference. Um, And and that can be tough to deal with because when you have caregiver burnout, you can't just take time off. You know what I mean? I feel like movies always show that you... Uh, plan this wonderful trip to India. <laughs> and, and you Are meet... you going to have your e pray love moment, Mama? Exactly. <laughs> you meet some wise old man on top of a mountain, and <laughs> you come back at peace. Oh um, my goodness! No, you, to struggle through it, you got to do it while you continue to work and continue to provide care because you got to got to pay the bills. So that sense of balance mm-hmm. is kind of what I've been thinking about. Is um, I've been thinking about, like, self-care. I am really bad at self-care because I tend to fall back on habits that don't provide self-care, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like eating too much, staying up too late, watching too much TV. These things aren't self... In my head, it's, like, immediate gratification, but it's not self-care because they ultimately make me more tired, more depressed. So... I'm trying to have that work-life balance where in my personal life, I'm actually doing things that fill my cup and not just because it's immediate gratification, but in the long run actually hurt Mm -hmm. me. So that's what I'm thinking about with that. Yeah, I think for me it's pretty similar because I I don't have the work-life balance problem because I don't really work that often, but... I know I have been doing the staying up too late and eating too much garbage instead of just cooking dinner and stuff like that. And I've been feeling kind of blah lately. And that's probably why. So I think maybe I do need to also kind of get some more balance into into my life in that sense. Because I've also been letting like chores around the house go. Which I'm sure the cats are not real thrilled with me in my <laughs> iffy <laughs> schedule for cleaning litter boxes. So yeah, I think that's a good... Balance is something that I do need right now, too. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I think it's time that Bob learned how to clean the litter boxes for you. It's time. You know, they I it's do time, everything Bob. in this house, and they do nothing. And I think it's about time they started pulling their way. They do nothing. <laughs> Those little bitches. No, I'm just kidding. They're the sweetest, loveliest, loveliest, most floofy. Um, it's amazing when you have that emotional exhaustion. The... the small things feel like too much. Yeah. And I know that happens to me because like the cooking dinner thing, um, I can cook something simple. And when I finally do it, I'm like, that took 10 minutes. It was so easy. 
Um, but it'll weigh on me and feel like too much. And so I'll just eat bread <laughs> or something. something. Or like cold soup out of a can. Legit. Like something that takes no effort. And then when you finally put in that minimal effort, you're like, like you... <laughs> Anyway, anyway, KJ, how are you feeling about the I mean, I'm going to dig right into what Cassandra had said, because I have really been in a place recently where I've been um, kind of on a roller coaster with feeling really good about how I identify and feeling really good about how I present. And then... Um, and then somebody misgenders me in a very public setting and I'm not sure, like, is this the moment where I should say something? Should I correct? Should I, um, should I make a joke about it to like take the burden off of their emotional labor, which puts more emotional labor on me? Um, and my boss, uh, we were talking at the desk the other day. And um, after I taught my classes and somebody came up and they were like, I've been trying to drag my husband to this. And I was telling him, you know, like a guy teaches this class. And I looked at my boss and I was like, well, sort of. And uh, and winked. And she was like, she kind of looked back at me and I could tell that she was like thinking about saying something. Then she texted me yesterday and was like, that actually really bothered me. If I say something, would that would, would that be OK with you? And I was like. That actually would be great because then it's not always my job because I introduce myself with my pronouns, but I don't. I don't quote unquote look non-binary when I'm wearing my like my my gym shorts and a tank top, right? Like so it's just like, oh, uh, body hair boy. Uh, <laughs> right. And so yeah, I've been really f- trying to find balance between when do I say something or when I say something, if somebody I've I've had this happen to me now like a couple times in the last week where I've been like, yeah, that happened. And then somebody has said, well, you know, it's hard for that other person and it's really difficult for them to. And I'm like, immediately, I'm like, why is it that every time I try to center my own experience, it's immediately negated by your discomfort? So I'm trying to find the balance between wanting to just flame that person in the moment and also like trying to find patience with like, okay, it sounds like, you're trying to process some emotions and feelings about that. Like Aubrey said, do you remember what, what Aubrey said about when, when people would like take things out of her cart on, on maintenance phase, everybody. And, and she, and she, and, and people would be like, well, they were just trying to help you. And she's like, they see themselves in the shoes of the person perpetrating the violence, right? The, the emotional violence. And it's hard for people in that situation. They're like, Oh, am I the asshole? I don't think I'm the asshole. I'm not the drama. Am I like it's, and I want to have patience. I want to have like loving care for that because that's how we're going to help people learn. But some days I'm like, I want to set you on fire. <laughs> right. And also like most you days, des- that's my feeling. Yeah. Most days <laughs> you deserve the time and space to be seen, to be heard and to vent. And it's so frustrating when you're venting and people take the side of the person committing the either aggression or microaggression. It's like, why are you taking their side? Of course they're working through some shit. It's still aggravating. Yeah, exactly. So like, I'm I'm, I'm not trying to both sides this. I'm trying to just like, okay, you're having a parasympathetic like <laughs> nervous system like response right now your body got rigid your breathing changed your heartbeat changed um which is a trauma response right so so you're like working through that in the moment and i know both of you can relate to that right where you're like you're having that moment you're like okay how am i going to deal with this uh, how 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 do i and sometimes the best way to deal with it is to not 
just walk away. Is to just pump that blood pressure cuff as high as it goes. <laughs> Until you pass out. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. No. And yeah. my arm's purple. It's supposed to it's be. It's supposed to be. <laughs> I swear I'm not abusive. I know. We should we should really put a disclaimer. She's kidding. She's uh, kidding. But no, so yeah, I I uh that's a card that I've actually gotten a couple times in the last couple of months. And um every time it comes up it kind of comes back to the same thing so it's 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 just like trying to find that balance in our lives whether it's with work or with our emotional spiritual connection to the world around us or trying to figure out okay i'm clearly coming out or working through a depressive spell like what am i what am i doing that is helping me find that balance and also how do i get back to that point when it's hard to get back to that point um what did i do like taking stock, I think, is another way to, to think about this. Um, oh, I see we have a furry friend in the lab. Yeah. Who's this? this is Ashes. Oh, that's Ashes. Oh. I know she doesn't come out much, but she's been she's been spending a lot of time upstairs with me lately. She's coming out of her shell. <laughs> For those listening, Ashes has joined Junko in her studio. <laughs> <laughs> It does kind of look like your, your your bedroom kind of has that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> it's the slanty ceilings, I bet, that gives it the studio it, it, vibe. I mean, absolutely. Um, slanty ceilings that have been the bane of my life for my oh. entire life. Because this is also oh, my childhood bedroom. No. <laughs> yeah. And um. then real quickly, I don't want to linger on it, but do we have any news highlights that we just want to comment on that are like we don't have to go in depth has anything happened this last week um, um tucker carlson think... oh no um, what did he do <laughs> uh hang on a second here i i saw a, a headline article that i feel like mm, let's just see here what pops up first yes um so let's see here Oh, no. Um, so basically, Tucker Carlson is really front and center right now because um, he... Uh, oh, God, where is it? Um, I can't find the exact article that came up this morning because it's all... There's so many terrible things about him, but he is... He's in trouble right now. Let's put it that way. People are actually like paying attention to the fact that he's a liar. He stokes some of the worst fears in his listeners, and he has one of the most popular primetime news shows in the country. Um, well, I was listening to some people talk about how, so the the guy who committed the massacre in Buffalo and, sh- and shot those 10 uh, black people, was it at a grocery store? Yeah. Yes. Um... He, I think, released a white supremacist racist manifesto, and people were discussing how Tucker Carlson often spouts shit that is very similar to what that manifesto is. Yes, exactly. Um, and not that Tucker Car- Carlson caused that uh, radicalized person, because I think that... Um, I think that downplays the problem of radicalized white supremacists. Like, it didn't just come from a TV. Like, it's a problem deeply rooted in our history and our country. It's not just... Like, if we got rid of Tucker Carlson, there'd still be these horrible racists. 
Um, but at the same time, he doesn't help. And he helps he helps it perpetuate and live Ex- on. Exactly. Well, he one of the things he said was that the 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 shooting massacre in Buffalo was not racially motivated. And like, and had a bunch of like fake facts about. I know, but M- Mama, your your head just went around in seventeen circles, <laughs> just, just like frustration response. I, just that it's like what? No, I, of course it, he said it was. And <laughs> the um, murderer said it. Also, was. was it North Carolina or South Carolina? I really, really, really need to start like saving these two to to to, to my Instagram favorites so I don't lose these. Um, one of the one of the major. Uh, political individuals in one of those southern states said that they wouldn't have a uh a uh pregnant a pregnancy uh what is what is the rate called when you uh the the death rate from pregnancy what is the what is the fancy term for that? Maternal like maternity mortality. Yes, mat- yeah. yep, ma- maternal mortality. There there okay. we go. That their rate wouldn't be so high if you didn't include black women. He just said that out loud. He's just they're just saying saying this shit out loud. The quiet part is now very loud. Yeah. Um, but they keep they get to keep their job. If I said something like that, if any of us said something like that at work, bye. Yeah. <laughs> and you should go by like yeah. why would you say something? Why like would you that? say that? Um and they feel emboldened. They feel like it's okay for them to do it. And um uh I'm here to tell you, me personally, I statements, I think you're garbage. And I hope you get jettisoned off the planet by a freak accident with a geyser. (laughs) That's all I can think of. Um, Yes, I think we should be allowed to abort people up to 80 years. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's the second week in a row we've made that joke. And I still think it's not really a joke. Um, (laughs) I still think it's tasteful. (laughs) I still think it's tasteful. Um, Anyway, so yeah, it's... uh, Once again, we will have resources down in the... Uh, down in the show notes to make sure that you f- have ways to get involved, that you feel like you have actionable steps. It's important for us to vent. It's important for us to just kind of rage scream a little bit about all this, but also we want to make sure we offer you actionable ways for you to feel like you're involved and to actually be involved so that we're not just screaming into the void. <laughs> Absolutely. I, the anti-racist work is just so important and I think especially when you live in a predominantly white community like Eau Claire, because um, what you you just have to be an ally and advocate because that community is just so much smaller. And anyway, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, so what we're saying is that real life is the true spooky shit. Yeah, uh, seriously. <laughs> but now let's, let's yeah, indeed. Let's now let's make a little shift into. Uh, a different type of spookening. Um, and I think Junko, special guest, our our wonderful guest today, you should go first. I should go first. Okay. Well, today, I am very excited to present to you the story of Summerwind, which is a classic haunted story in Wisconsin that most people have heard of, I think. But it's fallen a little bit... I don't know if I have. Well, you're in for a treat, because it's good. So yes, you are. I first heard about Summerwind from the book Haunted Heartland by Beth Scott and Michael Norman, which my grandmother loaned to me when I came down with the chicken pox while we were up at the lake one weekend. And that I was like oh. 10 years old. So that was every adult in my life at the time was like, 
yes, let's give you a book of ghost stories to make you feel better. And they were 100% <laughs> correct in that assumption. It made me feel a lot better. So Summerwind is a mansion located on West Bay Lake in the Cisco chain of lakes in northeastern Wisconsin. It's sometimes listed as being in Land Lakes, sometimes near Boulder Junction. It's very, very close to the border of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, West Bay Lake, in fact, is split by that border. And from all the history I found, the building was originally built sometime in the early 1900s, possibly around 1912, as part of the West Bay Lake Fishing Lodge Resort. In 1916, it was purchased by Robert Patterson Lamont, who was a wealthy businessman from Chicago, Illinois, um, who's probably best known for being the Secretary of Commerce under Herbert Hoover. Exciting, I know. Um, but he was also... Of course. <laughs> Herbert of course. Hoover. That's how I best knew Everybody's yes. favorite Hoover. <laughs> but uh, Wikipedia said that he was he has a degree in civil engineering, and he actually worked at the 19, or 1893 Columbian, World's Columbian Exposition, a.k.a. Chicago World's Fair, which is the one H.H. H. Holmes was at, by the way. Aha! Which I think is a lot more interesting. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot more interesting. <laughs> um, anyway, after he purchased the property, he remodeled it, took a couple years, and in 1918, his family, so him, his wife Gertrude, and their four kids, began using it as a summer home, which they dubbed Lilac Hills. I have no idea where the name Summerwind came from, but Lilac Hills is nice, too. And I would love a summer home that's a mansion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't we all? Oh, and it was a mansion. <clears throat> from the beginning, their servants complained of odd noises, shadows, and even a ghostly woman that they saw walking around the driveway area. But the Lamonts kind of dismissed everything, claiming, oh, it's just those silly servants overreacting or being superstitious. At those least... <laughs> uneducated plebes. <laughs> <laughs> At least until a night in the 1930s, when Lamont and his wife were eating dinner, and they heard the basement door in the kitchen start to rattle. When they got up to check on it, the door swung open, revealing a figure that scared Lamont so badly that he fired two shots at it, leaving behind <laughs> leaving behind two bullet holes in the basement door. And most, I was like, fired what? Oh, of course he had a gun. Yeah. It's Wisconsin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, most descriptions claim that the that the figure was a man too tall, dressed in black and swaying as though made from smoke pushed by the breeze, which is definitely spooky. Oh. <laughs> After this, the Lamonts left the house, never to return, and it stayed vacant for a while, as far as I can tell. Um, the family never spoke publicly of it, and Lamont never wrote about it in his journals, but there are people who have claimed to have heard the story about him shooting at the ghost. Um, and in the 1980s, there was a man exploring the wreckage of the house and claims that he found a door that had the two bullet holes in it, which would match. Which There's is a, a picture spooky. of it in the Haunted Wisconsin book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh, wreckage? So is it not well, uh, it was, up anymore? It's, the it was mostly vacant. After the Lamonts left, no one really resided in it for very long, so it was pretty, like, run down by the 80s. And, um, although I guess after this man found the door with the bullet holes, when he went back to look at it again, it was gone. So, make of that what you will. Um, there's another story... I mean, I don't think a... Oh, go. I don't think a man made of smoke would be susceptible to bullets. No. <laughs> yeah, it's whenever someone tries to shoot at a ghost, it always reminds me of the people who like try to shoot at Superman and are shocked when he's bulletproof. <laughs> like, what do you think was gonna happen? 
<laughs> but sometime during this period when the Lamonts owned it, there's another story of two girls who were canoeing on the lake when a storm moved in. They saw a woman in a white dress on the shore of the property waving to them, so they beached their canoe and followed her to the house. But when the woman disappeared in front oh, of them, oof. they ran away. Sometime later, they were canoeing on the lake again and went in the direction of the mansion because they wanted to investigate the ghostly woman. This time, the woman appeared, but she was waving away from them instead of waving them to come towards her. So they made the decision not to go over and investigate that day and found out later that apparently the property's caretaker was drunk at the time and randomly firing his rifle into the woods and threatening people with violence. So the assumption Again, is that the ghostly woman saved their lives. Yeah, Wisconsin. <laughs> middle of That's crazy. Middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, where the only thing you have to do is shoot guns and drink. Yeah, because when was that? Was that pre- I'm not um, sure. Internet. Yes, it was pre-internet. <laughs> I don't know the exact date. I assume it was sometime in the 30s or 40s, maybe. It's hard to say, because I've never been able to find an actual date for it. Just, oh, here's a story. Um, there's another one, too, with the woman in white that... I don't have a date for it either, but there were some men who were moving heavy equipment across a small bridge near Summerwind when a woman in an old-fashioned white dress appeared on the bridge and motioned for them to stop. They did, and I think she disappeared, at which point they stopped, inspected the bridge, and found out that the structure of it was damaged and never would have held the weight of the machinery they were moving. So the woman, once again, saved someone's life. So she seems like a helpful well, so ghost. She's like... Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, she seems like a good ghost. Um, <laughs> so after the Lamonts, the next owners were Mr. and Mrs. Kiefer. Um, most accounts claim that they bought the place in 1941, but I've seen it that they didn't buy it until 1948. But as the story goes, six months after purchasing the property, Mr. Kiefer died of a heart attack. I can't tell if it was while he was at the place or not, but let's pretend that it was, because that's spookier. Um <laughs> After that, Mrs. Kiefer was so unsettled by the house that she refused to enter it, completely abandoning it, and told the neighbors that they could take whatever they wanted from it, but she wasn't responsible if something bad happened to them while they did. Um, over time, she sold parcels of land around the house until only the mansion and the land immediately around it remained. And she apparently sold that several times too, but the purchasers would always default on payments and then the property would revert back to her. So she just could not get rid of this. Um... <laughs> She couldn't dump this place. So the next time someone like actually resided in the house was in the 1960s. Arnold and Ginger Hinshaw bought it in 1969, and their goal was to fix it up and move the whole family in. After Ginger found the original blueprints to the house and became interested, some accounts say obsessed, with restoring the house to its former glory. However... They experienced a lot of problems trying to get people to come to the house to actually do the work on it because, as they claimed, contractors would only work for a day or so before making excuses not to come back or just make excuses not to even take the job, and some told them outright that the place was haunted and they wanted nothing to do with it. So they tried to do as much of the work themselves as they could, but they had odd experiences of their own, of course, because it's a haunted house. Uh, flickering lights, seeing shadows out of the corner of their eyes, muffled voices behind closed doors to empty rooms, appliances that would stop working only to fix themselves before anyone could make repairs. Uh, they had a lot of problems with windows that would open on their own, so much so that Arnold had to nail several shut that refused to stay closed. 
And, of course, they saw the apparition of a woman walking past the French doors of the dining room. And once, they even saw her dancing in the living room during dinner one night. Presumably, this is the very Ooh. helpful ghost. And she's just, you know, taking a break. <laughs> um, there was... <laughs> she's, just she's just dancing. Just taking a, taking a, having a dance break after a day of saving people, apparently. Um, one aspect <laughs> that I think is... But was it a spooky dance? <laughs> yeah. Hard to say. Um, there was also apparently a set of curtains that Ginger took down when they first moved in and replaced, and periodically they would just reappear on the windows, which is actually legitimately spooky. <laughs> There's also the story that Arnold's car apparently just caught fire one day, parked at the house, which is also a little frightening, even if it wasn't ghostly. But the Probably the most famous story about Summer Wind is um, one day when Arnold and Ginger were painting a closet in one of the bedrooms. They pulled out a built-in shoe drawer to paint around it and discovered there was a hole in the wall behind it. So Arnold crawled in to investigate and found what appeared to be an old hairy animal corpse. But there was plumbing and other stuff in the wall, so he couldn't get close enough to really get a good look at it. So when the kids got home from school, they enlisted one of their small children to crawl into the wall and look at the corpse. So their daughter, Mary, was able to get in, and she reported back that actually it looked like a human skull, with hair still attached, along with an arm and a leg. So yeah. for whatever reason, they never reported this to police. They claimed later that it was because the corpse appeared to be so old that it wouldn't have mattered. But then they just apparently left it there because they said later they tried to go back to look for it again, but it wasn't there anymore. So this spooked them. And according to their accounts, um, Arnold started to have a bit of a mental breakdown after this. He had an organ in the house that he liked to play as a hobby. And suddenly his playing became very dark and frantic at all hours of the day and night. And he claimed that it was demons telling him to do it that way. I've also heard a story that he killed a family pet, which caused everyone to rightly be terrified of him. And eventually they left the house. He sought treatment. Ginger took the kids and they divorced later. Um, and according to all of the accounts I've found, they've only lived in the house for about six months at this point. Wow. So yeah, that got dark. Yeah. This is like, like a paranormal activity when you're watching the show and you're like, just move. Yeah. <laughs> you clearly have money. Just go. <laughs> So the next owners of the house were not too long after this. Um, after the Hinshaws left, the next occupant was Raymond Bober, who was Ginger Hinshaw's father, actually. So his goal was, again, to fix it up, and he wanted to turn it into a restaurant in an inn. And he and his son Carl moved into a camper parked in the driveway and began working on renovations. They had seen, according to them, they had the same problems that the Hinshaws had with contractors refusing to work on the place and had their own spooky stuff happen. In their case, windows refused to stay open, which was the opposite of what the Hinshaws had experienced. And they had tools that disappeared, reappeared in odd places, rooms that changed dimensions whenever they were measured, sometimes as much as twice as big as the original blueprints claimed. Um, photographs taken in the same position with the same camera seconds apart appear to show significant distortions to the space. And those curtains that Ginger Hinshaw had taken down that kept reappearing also reportedly showed up in pictures that Bober had taken of the same room. 
And they claim this also happened with oh. a ghostly desk that had previously occupied a space where they were taking other pictures. Which is legitimately spooky, actually. Just curtains that yeah. just... They're not there when you take the picture, but they show up in the picture. That is actually frightening, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, another experience that Carl, Bilber's son, had. Um, it was raining. It had started raining. So he ran into the house to close a window that was open. And when he went downstairs to grab a mop, went back upstairs, the window was open again. And he shut it again. And then he heard someone say his name twice. So he went downstairs, searching for the person who had spoken. On his way down, though, he heard oh. two gunshots come from the kitchen. And when he entered the kitchen, it was it was filled with gun smoke <laughs> and smelled of gunpowder. Of course, despite all of the you know stories and stuff, he still thought it was an actual person. So he ran outside, hoping to catch them before they ran away. But he found no one. And when he got to the kitchen to look around again, he saw the bullet holes in the door from Lamont, presumably. And as he was looking at them, he felt a presence rush up behind him, which caused him to flee the house in terror. Which is spooky, when you've got ghosts shooting at you, apparently. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and then charging this, you. <laughs> this house needs to go. <laughs> so, sometime after that, he and Ginger were going over plans for the house, and Ginger noticed he was anxious and fidgety. Since she had recently been studying hypnosis, she offered to hypnotize him in order to help with his anxiety. Was this the 70s? This yes. feels like the 70s. Yes, this was the 70s. Um, <laughs> he agreed, quickly fell into a trance, and she was just asking him questions, and eventually started asking him about Summerwind, and his voice changed abruptly, dropping much lower than usual, almost to a growl, and he started repeating, I am strong. I am strong. You are weak. Ginger had conveniently recorded the session, and when she played it back for him later, he was really shocked to hear what he had said. So then when Raymond, Carl's father, heard about this, um, he was convinced Carl's experience was related to what had happened to the Lamonts in the 30s. So he asked Ginger to hypnotize him, too, which she did. During this, he saw himself walking through the mansion down to the basement, where he grabbed a tool and opened up a section of the house's foundation and pulled out a black wooden box. Ginger asked him to write down what was in the box, and he mimed using a quill and parchment to write Jonathan Carver. After this, he developed a theory that Carver had buried a land deed made with the Sioux tribe in the foundation of the house, and that the ghost haunting the mansion was Carver himself, seeking Bober's help to find the deed. Now, if you're wondering who Jonathan Carver is, I have the answer to that. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I have no Thank idea. Thank goodness. Did he also know Herbert Hoover? I don't think so. Um, Jonathan Carver was an explorer who was born in 1710. He learned the trade of surveying and map making from a militia that he joined in 19, or 1755. Um, he eventually went on to explore uncharted areas of North America using those skills. And according to the legend, he made his way to the Wisconsin and Minnesota region and struck a deal with the Sioux tribe in that area that granted Carver the land rights to a very large chunk of the land, which the deed, which is the deed that Bober claims is buried in the foundation of Summerwind. So Bober continued communicating with the ghost of Carver and spent a lot of time looking for the box in the house, but he was never able to find it. In 1979, he wrote a book about the whole thing under the pseudonym Wolfgang von Bober, Wolfgang spelled with two Fs, called The Carver Effect, <laughs> detailing Everything, his experiences, his theories, and all of that, um, unsurprisingly, it never really 
hit the mainstream. And you can still find the book around, but it's kind of expensive since Summer Wind has gotten a little popular in the intervening years. And I imagine the book itself is out of print. Oh, yeah. Long out of print. Because <laughs> I think it might have yeah. only had the one print run. <laughs> but according to the neighbors, Bobers <laughs> yeah, um, only worked on the house for like two summers before giving it up. Um, I haven't been able to find specific dates, but it was sometime in the 70s. Eventually, Mrs. Kiefer and or her estate got the property back, and it sat unoccupied for a while, falling further into disrepair, and eventually it became a hangout spot for local teenagers. Which, again, is unsurprising <laughs> in the middle of nowhere Wisconsin with nothing else to do. Um, of course right, teenagers... And again, of course teenagers now, are going to hang out Now there. we're in the 80s, right? Yes. So rowdy, rowdy teens in the 80s. Yep. <laughs> I bet they were doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh my god, so much speed. <laughs> on their boomboxes. <laughs> sex, sex, drugs. <laughs> on their, on their Walkmans. <laughs> so, in November of 1980, Life Magazine ran a feature of the top nine most terrifying sites in the U.S. That included Summerwind. And Ooh. that is how Summerwind got national attention. All of that attention started bringing ghost hunters from across the country, and that, combined with it being kind of a teen party spot, kind of upset the locals, because now it's supposed to be this quiet, backwoods, summer lake home area, and now you've got all of this traffic going through there. So there's, there is a story from this time. Um, sometime in the 80s, a group of teens went to the house after hearing the story of it. Um, the first time they went, nothing that exciting happened. But the second time they went, they brought a Ouija board, because that always ends well. Um, no. <laughs> because of course mm -hmm. they did. They started, Never do that. started with simple questions, um, started getting answers right away. When they asked if the spirit wanted them to leave, it spelled out N-O-W. After that, they left pretty quickly. Uh, but one of them on the way out paused to take a photo of the front of the house, and when the film was developed, because it was the 80s, we still had film back then, uh, a ghostly face could be seen in one yeah, of the yeah. windows watching them leave. And there's, no. there is Get another story, out, too, bitch. of a couple who lived in the area who would take walks through the property in the evenings, and one night they claimed to have seen the house expanding and contracting as though it were breathing. Well, that is fucking terrifying. Well, now we're getting into some Amityville <laughs> shit here. Like. Yeah. So, 1985 local officials tried to have the building demolished because it was apparently driving vandalism and theft to other homes in the area with all of the teens hanging out there and all of the strangers coming in. Um, but for whatever reason, they failed. The building Plus, it's a living, breathing house. It does seem like it would be a public menace. Um, but they were unable to get the approval to do it, so the house was allowed to stay. In 1986, Harold Tracy bought the property, presumably from Mrs. Kiefer's estate, as an anniversary gift to his wife in the hopes of renovating the building. Um, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ, rich white people. <laughs> I cannot. But to their credit, as of 2017, the Tracys were still the owners of the property, so they held on to it even for, for a while. Uh, but unfortunately, they would not get the chance to get it renovated. On June 19th, 1988, which was Father's Day, the mansion burned to the ground. The official story is that a lightning strike was the cause of the fire, since there was a thunderstorm that morning and locals reported being awakened by a lightning strike nearby. But there are a couple other theories. 
Um, fire department. Uh, the fire department left open the possibility that people partying may have left something burning that caused the fire, but the more persistent theory is that it was burned intentionally, either by locals fed up with the partying and ghost hunters, or by the fire department, probably for the same reasons. There are some neighbors who have claimed that the fire department sent out a letter shortly before the fire, declaring the property condemned and that it was said to be burned by them in a controlled burn. Yeah, so some neighbors claimed that the fire department sent out a letter shortly before the fire, declaring the property condemned and set to be burned, and none of the vegetation around the house was burned, which has led some to conclude that it was a controlled uh-huh. burn. Uh-huh. Um, and some people claim the property still had working lightning rods. I don't know how they'd know that, but... Anyway, the fire department denies yeah, all of this. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I. I kind of think that nice ghost was like this. This has got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fire department denies that they had anything to do with it. Um, it hasn't. It's kind of only fanned the flames of the conspiracy theories. My personal opinion is that the thunderstorm is probably the most likely, um, because. Unburned vegetation during a thunderstorm, that is also presumably a rainstorm, isn't necessarily a sign of a controlled burn. And yeah, lightning will strike things during storms. And the neighbors <laughs> definitely sure would have been oh, woken sure up. Da- neighbors definitely would have been woken up by a lightning strike nearby. So that seems to be the most likely. All the theories, all the theories seem possible though. Like it seems like people hated the house. Yeah. It is possible. I think the lightning strike is the most likely, though. I think just that, oh, well, none of the vegetation around it was burned. I don't think that's good proof that it was a controlled burn. No, that sounds like uh, people people trying to, like, see, see, that proves my point type of a yeah. type of an argument, which it's like, well, it's like if scientifically. You, if you've ever actually seen the results of a fire from a lightning strike, which, hello, I have. Um, yeah, same. The uh, vegetation around it doesn't necessarily burn because i mean it happened in june which is typically a wetter month in wisconsin anyway and happened during presumably a rainstorm so that would have slowed it down because eventually that stuff would have caught fire but you know if the fire department got there within a reasonable amount of time then they could have prevented the rest of the vegetation from catching so yeah i'm not convinced it's possible but i think the thunderstorm is the most likely so, I like the idea that the house was tired of all yeah. the partying and all the ghost hunters and the house conjured the lightning to <laughs> to basically destroy itself, to rid just, itself just of, me out of my its, misery. Uh, its earthly presence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as oh, of now, boy. the ruins of the mansion do still exist, but they are basically just the stonework. So you've got the foundation. There were a couple of chimneys, a nice terrace, which is... I, from the pictures I've seen, it kind of looks like a deck, but it's made of stone and it's got like arches and stuff underneath it, and it looks cool. Again, it was a mansion, so I guess it would look cool, but um, it is still Grandiosity. private property too. Um, I don't think it's owned by the Tracys anymore, but I haven't been able to really pinpoint who the owners are. But there is a paranormal group called Fox, Fox Valley Ghost Hunters who do regularly do camping trips to the site because they have the owner's permission. And there are other people who have gotten permission to visit, too. So it is possible to visit it legitimately if you, you know, search out the owners. Um, And despite the mansion being gone, people visiting the site do report having experiences. Some people feel uneasy. Some see shadowy figures. A lot of reports of rocks being thrown and EVPs. 
Um, I've heard one story about they were doing EVP work and they heard an EVP that was like gave them a number like five or something and they kept saying that number over and over again and they stopped and they decided to go check the driveway and as they were walking down the driveway coming up the driveway was another group of people who did not have permission to be on the property so they kind of scared them off and they think that the ghostly voice was kind of warning them to there are people who are not supposed to be here maybe it was the helpful ghostly woman again um, yeah those ghosts care a lot about permission yeah <laughs> those ghosts and their rules so is evp um, electronic the, voice where phenomena you... so it's typically it's if you've got a recorder recording audio and you don't hear anything while you're recording but when you go back and listen to the recording then you hear voices that's an evp mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like on 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 um when uh, on ghost adventures when they hear a sound and they're like Eh. And then they say it sounds. It sounds like it's saying "get out." <laughs> because- well, now I'm a little terrified to listen to the recording of this podcast. <laughs> we have no idea what we're gonna hear. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be a fourth. It's gonna be that ghost lady, and she's gonna be like, "I was never introduced." Yeah, Austin, I didn't want to tell you, but the last couple times that I've edited, I've had to take out EVP because I thought it would be too spooky for our listeners. No, you whore. <laughs> It's all for me. <laughs> now, you know, I I bet the because small communities communities in Wisconsin tend to be very antisocial. Insular, yeah. so, we could say insular. <laughs> yeah. So I doubt they want this, but like someone needs to buy that property and like make it an attraction. That would That's what awesome. they've been trying to do. Like everyone who's Ugh. owned it over the years has really tried to do it, and. I think the co- current owners also would really like to do it. They have the original blueprints to the mansion, and they want to rebuild it, but it's expensive, and uh, they're having trouble raising the money, especially, I imagine, in the last few years. Well, yeah. Well, now I'm wondering if this is a Scooby-Doo type of a situation. The local <laughs> area was like, no, they cannot do this. So for the last hundred years, somebody in a mask that needs to be unmasked <laughs> yeah, that, has been terrorizing this that is one of the theories as to what a lot of this stuff comes from. I mean, because there are a lot of people who claim this whole story is bullshit. Um, locals have said that the rumors of it being haunted never really existed before Raymond Bober released his book in 79. And no one outside of the area really had ever heard any stories of it being haunted until the magazine article in 1980. So that popularity also drew a lot of local teenagers who weren't already hanging out there and some of them have claimed in years past to make up stories about the place and then when other people would show up pretend to be the ghosts um oh (laughs) and i've seen some stories from people who claim to have lived on the property during the years when i wasn't able to find any like actual records of who was living there and they said they've never had any sort of paranormal experience and there's not a whole lot of records to corroborate any of the stories really especially the Lamonts because they got the story about the shooting the ghost but he never wrote about that in his journals and there's a few people who claim that he told them about it but you just have their word to go on it um so it's possible that it was just teenagers mostly making it up of course you could also have you could also have that the locals were tired of the attention and were downplaying all of those rumors in order to keep people away and pretending it was just teenagers but who knows 
Yeah, and then there's I know. then there's the I don't whole, know though. If, oh, go ahead. I was just I was just saying I don't know if I support rebuilding this mansion. It sounds like it needs to be like yeah. oh, it sounds like it had too many problems. <laughs> Maybe it was built over a hell mouth. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's rumors that it was built on Indian burial mounds because Of course, that's, because that's always it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw somewhere once that like if anything built over an Indian burial ground is haunted, then the entire United States is haunted because it's. I, I was all I was about to say like ground. there's, <laughs> once upon a time, <laughs> like and also were the ghosts white because it seems to be yeah. It's like why aren't the ghosts Native Americans? Well, yeah, because and especially if I'm, if the argument is that Jonathan Carver is the one haunting the property, then why are there all these reports of a woman in white? You know what, though? If anyone is going to haunt it, it, it might be white people, because they tend to just be so much more bitter. Yeah. Well, and white people, when they claim ownership to something, they decide they own it forever. <laughs> yeah. That's why they're so concerned about trespassers. Well, oh it is it is gosh. really interesting, because this is also a story of, like, rich white people wanting to create, like, a getaway in the middle of, you know, you know what I mean? In, like, the middle of, like, nowhere, where they have this little, like, private private playground of their own yeah and something about this area whether or not it was supernatural or just naturally occurring um something about that area was like nope yeah (laughs) but then so with the whole jonathan carver thing too it seems very likely that that's entirely bullshit um because carver's journals show that he was never in the area of west bay lake at all and historians have since determined, too, that the Sioux never actually resided in that area either. So it's unlikely that they would have given him a land deed to land that they never resided on and he never visited. Um, and that was the part I was wondering, too, yeah. because with the with with uh, my my limited knowledge of where certain indigenous groups were living in this upper Midwestern area, um Different groups refer to themselves by different names, and Sue is actually interested because it's very contested, um, because it translates in some in some languages to snake, and yeah. some some tribes don't like that term. Yeah. So I it was all, I was like this I don't remember whole theory is coming from Raymond Bober, who is presumably exactly. also a white dude in a the white 70s. dude. So um, so I was I was just like, were there any any native tribes of that name living in this yeah. this area of Wisconsin at the time. Sounds like that no. was another thing that stuck out to me. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there is a rumor that there was in fact a land deed and that it was found sometime, I think in like the thirties in Wausau, not land of lakes. And Wausau is about a hundred miles South of there. Ooh, Wausau. Wausau. Um, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no one, even Bober has offered any real explanation for how that land deed would have somehow ended up in the foundation of a house built more than 130 years after Carver died oh. in an area that he's confirmed to have never visited. So it is I'm an interested. odd theory. I'm interested in the dead body in the house. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> how long was that body there? And was it a person? Cause you also sent a little girl. <laughs> Like, or yeah. just a child in general. Yes, it was a small child, someone who could climb through the wall. Yeah, I I don't know. They they said they never reported it to police because it looked so old that it was probably nothing could be done about it. But then they just left it there and tried to find it again later. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's an odd story. 
but it is spooky too. It's got some spooky. I know. It's I like wild it. that it has so. Yeah, I was gonna say it has such an interesting history, um, and whether or not it's like paranormal and spooky, there the the really interesting piece of it is that it's sort of like um, the story of the Overlook Hotel in um, in Stephen King's The Shining. It's like these these areas that someone is trying to create something there, and over and over again the attempt fails, and people keep trying. They keep trying to make this thing happen and it keeps falling apart. And there is a part of me that spiritually is like, I don't know. It just sounds like the stars were not aligned for that. And something is very against that. And maybe we should have stopped a long time ago. Well, yeah. Um, And it is interesting too, that it, it sat unoccupied for so long, even though lots of people tried to buy it. And like, even if it wasn't haunted, then why did so many attempts fail? I don't know. I don't have an answer. Well, for sure. No kidding. Oh, that's a good it's very mysterious. I'm just picturing those girls um, canoeing on the lake. Because if you've ever canoed, like, before it gets dark, lakes are very spooky. They are. Oh, I it's love very, it. It's also it's frightening quiet. being on a lake when a storm is rolling in. Because you I've, can yeah. see it. Because I've done that, too, and it's not fun. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's coming at you. <laughs> so I guess maybe it is reasonable that they canoed towards the ghost. Yeah. <laughs> My first thought was, no, you get away from... But they thought it was a lady, not a ghost. Yeah, presumably she looked real. Because it sounded like they didn't think <laughs> anything was amiss until she just disappeared right in front of them. So Right. I mean, you know, lightning strike or stranger danger. Whichever yeah. one you prefer. <laughs> um, I don't want to ruin our flow, but are we able to take a quick break? You know, I was actually just going to ah. suggest that because I think we're going to have Sally ourselves sneezed, a grand old time today. Ew. And on that note, <laughs> Sally's sneeze is going to take us out to a little break. We'll be right back. Hello, all you Queer MoCast listeners out there. Hope you're having a spooky good time. Just a reminder that we do have links to resources down in the show notes so that you can find actionable ways to get involved and create a collective community movement. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you for staying with us during our planned break. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't done one of those for a while. It was real fun. Your your break was brought to you by beetroot. Is that blood in my urine? No, it's beetroot. <laughs> this was I Nurse's Corner that, with Austin. And I thought that was too funny. <laughs> if you've ever wondered what it's like being friends with a nurse. Um. <laughs> anyway, so we... Uh, we just got done with the haunted story of Summer Wind, which I choose to believe something ooky spooky was going on in that area. Yeah, it, I think the locals were just like, stay away. It's not real. As a ghost was pointing a gun at them. <laughs> it is hard to deny that there's something going on there because Fox Valley ghost hunters do have trips that they take and they have pretty recent reports of having odd experiences there. Um, there is a podcast called History Goes Bump that did an interview with some of the Fox Valley ghost hunters um, several years ago. I, I have I have it written down somewhere. Um, and that's really interesting because <laughs> they are having experiences even recently. So there's there's something going on there. And even if it's not paranormal, it's something a little weird, at least. Yeah, at least some alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely an alcoholic. 
Well, KJ now has a haunted story for I us. I do. I have two haunted sites from the Twin Cities area. One from Minneapolis and one from St. Paul. So oh, I'm going to start with our St. Paul story. The Wabasha Street Caves, which I do want this year. I know. I want to take a trip this the, this Halloween. I want you all to come up and I want us to do one of the one of the guided tours. Are they still doing um, the tours? I heard that the caves had yes, sold. Yes, I went to they... their website. So I went to the website and it looks like they do still have them on the books. You can you can okay, rent them. Cool. Um so I think somebody bought them and kept it going. That's oh that's great. Yeah, last time I had checked they said oh we're not doing tours anymore. Yeah. We're waiting for them to sell. So that's good cuz I really want to go on a tour. Yeah. What are these So here's what, what are they these are. Caves? So here's yeah, what these what are caves they? are. Sorry, I interrupted. So they were originally <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, so the Guabasha Street Caves were originally carved by a French family who were wanting to expand their mushroom business. And it was used as food storage, underground food storage for foods, kind of like a root cellar type of a thing. And then it for became... Like beetroot? Uh, yes, 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 for beetroot. <laughs> but here's the important part. Okay. Eventually... <laughs> They became a speakeasy and safe haven for gangsters in the 20s, 30s. So, I love drinking. Uh, lots of drinking. Um, <laughs> lots of murder, as we'll get into here. So John Dillinger was one of the most infamous bank robbers and gangsters. Uh, he was rumored to have spent a significant amount of time at the Wabasha Cave speakeasy. And I will post a picture of the speakeasy. There's some really cool underground photos of the bar. You can visit it as well. You can even rent it out as an event space. Um, but we'll get there. So. So during the gangster era in the United States, um, St. Paul was actually kind of a safe haven for gangsters and for anybody working in the syndicated crime ring in the United States. St. Paul and Minneapolis were really big for bootleggers um, and for uh, lots of lots of gangsters. Al Capone came up through Minneapolis quite often, and these caves were sort of a, a party spot for mobsters. And... Um, the, the caves were known to have hosted other notorious gangsters, including Ma Barker. And Ma Barker, Kate Barker, her full name, uh, was the mother of several American cr- uh, cr- uh, criminals who ran the Barker-Carpies gang during the public enemy era of the United States. So they were Midwestern criminals that traveled around the Midwest and basically had their mom as a chaperone. She kind of helped So run. are these, like, natural caves? Uh, the so they're 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 partially natural natural caves, but they were developed. They were okay. they were built. Um, they were carved out. <clears throat> um, and so here, oh, I just lost my spot. Um, <laughs> so here's how it went down. Uh, there was an incident in the caves. So four men who were obviously mobsters were sitting at a table playing cards. Here's where the story begins. A fifth man walked in with a case in his hands and asked everyone but the card players to leave. And there was a single waitress left behind to clean up after the card players. And she went to the kitchen to hear three popping sounds behind her. When she returned to the dining area of the speakeasy, she found three bodies on the floor. But the man with the case and his accomplice, who was one of the card players, had fled the scene. She reported to the St. Paul police, who had told her to stay outside during the investigation. And they all came back out and basically told her, if you make another fake call like this again, we'll arrest you. She went back inside and found that the bodies were gone, but there were still bullet holes in the stone fireplace. And 
it's reported that there's a chance that the mobsters moved the bodies or that there were some officers who were also involved with the syndicated crime ring, which is very likely given St. Paul and Minneapolis's police history. Um, it's pretty yeah, likely. <laughs> but there would be tons of blood, you would think. You would think, wouldn't you? But uh, yeah, she, she was asked to wait outside during the investigation. So, And the caves have interconnecting tunnels. So anybody who knows the caves would know how to get out a different way. Um, so there are legends that say that these three slain mobsters are, are hidden and buried somewhere within the tunnels. And it's never been substantiated. Their bodies have never been found. But what we do know is that there are a variety of reports of the ghosts of those three gangsters hanging out and spooking people. It's also been acknowledged that there is a female ghost who haunts the grounds because there's always a single spooky woman who also haunts <laughs> any place. I mean, goals, though. <laughs> right? We uh, Would that we all became single spooky women <laughs> guarding underground I'm cars. already that ghost. Um, so the the stories go that that these mobsters continue to haunt the caves anytime you go inside. Um, people have reported feeling even though you're in the caves there's like chilly spots colder spots within the caves um people have reported seeing the mobsters hearing the gunshots feeling like they're being followed like they're being watched um and like i said oh go ahead if any ghost is gonna terrify me it's like a douchebag cis hetero mob of course (laughs) right just womanizing and homophobia. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you get away from me. <laughs> so the best part is, is like I said, you can book a tour. So I, I, I will put the um, I'll put the link down in the, uh, uh, in, in in the show notes. But I just wanted to read to you from the from the website. So if you go to wabashastreetcaves.com, they do have an events calendar. Um, so they do still have, uh, apparently swing dancing. Uh, they do still do <laughs> tours and big band music. And like I said, you can rent out the event space, which there is still a, um, there is still a, uh, a, a, a space down, down below. Um, so one second here, it is being, it is being annoying. Hang on a second here. My, uh, my website, I opened it from drive. So it's mad at me right now. Also their <laughs> mobile version of the website is pretty, um, it's, it wasn't designed for that. Uh, <laughs> so one second. Uh, no, it was designed by mobster ghosts. They uh, don't, they don't know how to do a mobile version. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the, it looks like the venue was, was purchased, um, by, uh, some individuals. It doesn't say on the website who owns it now. Um, but yeah, you can... The website definitely looks updated from the last time that I saw it. Because yep. it still kind of looked like it came out of the like mid-90s. Yep, and this looks like it came out of the mid-2000s, so it's yep. an upgrade. Uh, <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> it's, still, it's still... Um, but the best part is, is that you can experience it for yourself. You can take a tour. You can uh, head down into the caves yourself and see if you experience anything spooky as well. So, and like I said, that's what I want to do this Halloween. Um, so I have one more story before we head over to Mama and hear what Mama has to say today. Um, this is also, so there is a park in Northeast Minneapolis called Beltrami Park. And... The interesting, uh, so I was going to spend 
my birthday there this year. We were going to do a picnic here, but unfortunately we had a thunderstorm and also a tornado watch. So we did not do that. That was the day it hailed very, very hard. Um, well, one of them. We've had several days. But Beltrami Park used to be a well-known cemetery called Maple Hill Cemetery. In 1857, there were up to 5,000 bodies resting there, many of which uh, were had, had been there for a while, some of which actually had uh, died during the Civil War. So there were... Uh, there, it, it had been around for, for a little while, but the, this, uh, in, in 1857, uh, like, like I said, there, there were up to the 5,000 bodies resting there. But by the late 1800s, the cemetery had become neglected and was condemned. So the city decided they were going to move 1,300 of those bodies and about 82 monuments over to Hillside and Lakewood Cemeteries. Lakewood Cemetery is uh, the one that Junko and I went to. Um, you've actually been to that one. So they moved some of the bodies and some of the monuments over there. Um, to be reburied. However, the other 3,700 bodies remained on site. And after some time, Maple Hill sat without care, even having some exposed caskets. So there were literally dead bodies hanging out. Like, yeah, they were still inside their caskets, but... Um, <laughs> so, rife for haunted fodder. Yeah, that, that um, seems a good way to get ghosts. Exactly. That's, that's like asking for ghosts. Uh, but by 1908, the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board came to own the land and finally cleaned up the site. So Maple Hill Cemetery was later rededicated as Beltrami Park, with a few of the remaining gravestones still there today. Um, and there is a story from uh, n- uh, 1907 from the Star Tribune, which is our local newspaper here in Minneapolis. And... Uh, the story goes that in eighteen and in, in April 1907, the Tribune reported that Maple Hill Cemetery was in deplorable condition. Rain had washed away sand at the western edge of the cemetery, exposing caskets to view, and children playing baseball had broken grave markers to pieces for use as bases. So it was to the point where it was super disrespected, right? Like, super disrespectful. Um, but uh, in... There's, there's a story from November 6th, 1899, a frightful cemetery in Northeast Minneapolis. So this is, uh, the, the article I believe was called Weird Adventure of a Young Woman While Walking Near a Cemetery in Northeast Minneapolis. So this was also in the Star Tribune. Um, she, uh, so, uh, uh, help, help. The ghost will get me, shrieked Ida Olson last evening as she rushed, rushed up to a pedestrian who was walking in Central Avenue near the abandoned cemetery in northeast Minneapolis. The girl, who was a domestic, was frightened so <laughs> badly that it was impossible for her to talk in a coherent manner. And for a time, it was feared that she had been driven insane by fright. She declared that while walking past the old cemetery with Ole Johnson, her sweetheart, a white object had arisen from one of the neglected graves and, with an unearthly yell, had pursued them. So they go through this story, right? This young woman is in hysterics in the way that young women would be in hysterics in 1899. Because <laughs> and of, of course, course she's a domestic. And of course, <laughs> she's a domestic. So a search party was formed because we got to get to the bottom of this. So several persons were in the drugstore at the time, and they at once formed a party and paid a visit to the old cemetery. As the aiding place 
a, a abiding place of the dead was approached, the courage of John disappeared, and he lagged behind. The girl, on the contrary, was fairly brave, now that there were other persons nearby, and she led the party to the place where she said the ghost had appeared. So the spot from which the figure had arisen... One second, I hate it when this happens. There we go. Let me start that sentence again. Um... One second. I hate it when Drive does this. There we go. Thank you. It's ruining my story. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. So, the spot from which the figure had arisen proved to be a slight depression on the mound, and the crushed down leaves and dead grass showed that a body of some sort had lain there. The adventure was becoming serious, and two or three members of the party did not venture as far away from their companions as they had done before the depression was found. Strange sounds began to be heard. As the little party looked, a sound that cannot be described came from the object, followed by a silence that was painful in its intensity. For a moment, no one moved or spoke. Then one of the more adventuresome members of the party started in the direction of the ghost, carrying a revolver in hand. Speak, or I'll shoot, he called as he scared the object. There was no response, and again he repeated the command. This time, the object moved a trifle and seemed to advance toward the party. As the man with the gun was about to fire, there broke upon the silent night a plaintive... <laughs> then a large white goat, with a beautiful pair of horns and a magnificent bunch of gray whiskers, walked up to the men and began nosing around as if expecting to be fed. The reaction was too much for the party, and the various persons laughed until they cried. Meantime, Johnson had disappeared, and Miss Olson was sent to her home in University Avenue Northeast. The, go the goat, it, later it was later learned, had been pastured in the old cemetery and the surrounding locality during the last summer, and he has been in the habit of sleeping around in any old place, and of going up to passersby and asking in his dumb way for something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Who the owner of the goat is could not be learned. So, spooky goat, demon goat. <laughs> I love stories like that because that was in the newspaper. Like, that's what the newspaper was before we had, you know, news to report on. Um, <laughs> but I love stories like that because that is exactly how spooky things tend to go a lot of the time. There is a rational explanation, but the reason we're so afraid is because there is a part in the back of our head, even some of the most staunch like skeptics when something like that happens there's an immediate reaction a natural reaction of ghost spook <laughs> um which i always find fascinating those are my those are my minneapolis spooky stories uh, i liked the the tunnels or the caves see a little seem a little bit more spooky just because that story ended with like it was the goat <laughs> <laughs> well the thing about it is that they so they have exhumed all the bodies from Beltrami Park, except for a few of them. There are still a couple of grave markers that are that are left there. So it is still technically a cemetery, while also a park that you can go relax and have a picnic in. So, you yeah, know. And I, I do have to wonder, too, when they made the decision to only exhume 1,300 bodies and move them, how do you choose which ones, first of all? And how do you think it's okay to just leave the rest there? Well, it must have been like a location thing. Like this part of the of, of, of the plot we're going to exhume the bodies from. But you're absolutely correct. It's like, yeah. uh, it's just, again, it's asking for a curse. Yeah. So <laughs> but also on the topic of cemeteries and parks, like the cemeteries that we have now, 
actually are kind of designed to be very park-like and that was a movement that happened i think in like the 1800s where mm -hmm. a lot of people actually used cemeteries as parks it was not uncommon to take a picnic basket and go have a picnic at the cemetery because they were designed to be very pleasing even to the living so yep i've wanted to do that for a while is go have a picnic in a cemetery because i'm a spooky bitch well <laughs> and that's what we were gonna do and then i got rained out so maybe we'll do it another time it's fine I'm not sad about it at all. Not bitter uh, at all. <laughs> I'm not bitter at all, weather. Um, but anyway, Mama, what you got for us? You know, I didn't plan a story. I thought you and Junko were going to carry the day. Oh. But if we want, I could just pick a random story from my haunted Wisconsin book. I mean, we love those. I do have another story. Um, I have oh. a personal story. Well, um, then you go. Okay. Well, uh, I told last time on the podcast, on the pod. Uh, I told a story about the fact that I do occasionally suffer from sleep paralysis. And I told one of my sleep paralysis stories and I decided that I would share another one this time. I don't think I told this one last time. This one is a little bit, um, the setting is a little less spooky because it takes place during the day. But that's part of the reason it disoriented me even more and that's almost spookier because with something because the daytime you're so at ease you that's know you're thing. not you're not afraid so when something scary happens during the day it's almost scarier i uh, i definitely i was i was unsettled for the rest of the afternoon um but i uh, uh many of our listeners since they are uh, close personal friends <laughs> for the most part <laughs> know that i used to work at starbucks for years and um, and I, even even uh, after Starbucks, I worked in cafes for a very long time. So I got really used to a very early morning schedule. I would get up at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and I would go to work. I know. And I would go to work, <laughs> and I would work until, like, noon or 1. I would get my hours in that way, and then I would come home. And oftentimes, I would have things going on in the evening because I was still a student. So I would have classes or rehearsals that were happening in the evening, so I had to get a little sleep in. So I would come home, make myself a large lunch, which I would then eat very quickly and then try to put <laughs> myself into a food coma to fall asleep. Um, it was the, the only best. thing I could think of that worked. And <laughs> I would often put on an episode of The Simpsons while I was eating lunch and then I would fall asleep watching it. They were kind of like a warm hug. I used to watch them all the time with Tyler. So I had a lot of them memorized. So it was an easy thing to fall asleep to. Um, and I was sleeping on the couch and the dream that I was having, because it was one of those nap kind of fever dreams, those weird lucid state dreams you kind of have sometimes when you nap midday, your body is in like a half, a half awake, half asleep state almost. And the episode I was watching was slowly blending into the dream. So I was having this very strange, surreal dream where like this episode of The Simpsons was blending into this strange like it was it started off kind of like interesting and then it became dark and creepy and weird that's the only thing I can remember I can't remember any of the details I just remember feeling really creeped out and then I remember thinking there's someone standing over me and I need to wake up and I was like did I did I not lock the door did someone walk into the house because I knew someone was standing over me I knew someone was there looking down at me and I sat 
And I was like, okay, you got to get up. Because all of a sudden I was self-aware. I was like awake and aware and I needed to get up. And I was like, okay, I can control my dream, which was rare. But occasionally I would have a lucid dream where I was in control of it. And suddenly I couldn't move, which was telltale sign I was going through sleep paralysis. Um, couldn't move. Felt like someone was pushing their hand down on my chest, like I wasn't breathing. And I was panicking because I was like, oh my God, is this person trying to suffocate me? Who, who, who is this? And I remember trying to open my eyes and I imagined in this like half awake, partially paralyzed state that there was a very, very tall shadow standing over me. And I was like, okay, I have to get up. I have to wake up. I have to wake up. And I couldn't do it. And then again, there was an episode of The Simpsons playing, playing. <laughs> so I kept hearing these sounds, but it was like slowed down really low versions of the sound. So now I'm hearing these really bizarre, low speaking voices while I also am imagining there's this tall shadow figure standing over me who I now think is trying to push like a pillow over my face because I feel like I'm not breathing because that's what sleep paralysis feels like for many people. And I don't know what happened. All I know is that all of a sudden I flipped myself off the couch and flung myself onto the floor. And I woke up in like a tangle of blanket on the floor, very disoriented while the credits to that episode of The Simpsons were playing. So I could not have been asleep for more than like 15 minutes. And so I must have zonked, kind of gotten to a half asleep state and ended up in sleep paralysis. And that happened on more than one occasion. That, that not exact story, but that version of sleep paralysis where I would come home, I would put myself into like a like an induced sleepy state by forcing myself basically to eat more food than I wanted to because it was the only thing I could think of feel heavy feel feel sleepy um because melatonin had stopped working and <laughs> um and I think that was part of it I would I would fall asleep my body would be kind of uncomfortable and it would put me into this weird dream state. So I eventually stopped doing that after two years. But um, <laughs> girl, she got problems. She got problems. <laughs> um, but yeah, my uh, my sleep paralysis stories, um, the ones that stick out in my brain are the ones where it it felt like there was a malevolent presence that was trying to harm me in some way. Um, again, I mean that's terrifying. <laughs> the nurse and me. <laughs> <laughs> thinks that you ate a lot and then lied flat and so you had really bad acid reflux which can cause shortness of breath which is also very possible because i probably also drank so much coffee which is incredibly acidic yeah. so <laughs> right a- and it loosens that esophageal sphincter so there you go so there it was <laughs> that and also i have asthma and if i end up in a certain position i do end up like getting shortness of breath um but still how terrifying i mean all of that plus though the sleep paralysis unable to wake up and you're kind of conscious of what's around you but your brain is also adding shit that's that's the thing that and also the fact that i woke up and it was like a bright sunny like 2 p.m right like (laughs) just uh like if this can happen now it can happen at any time um but i did i did know i do notice that my sleep paralysis moments happen when I've been drinking heavily or when I eat too much and then fall asleep. Um, so kind of like certain foods can trigger, ins- like, like um, uh, uh, 
sleepwalking that's the word that i couldn't find sleepwalking i know the whole time you were uh, telling that story about the and eating beforehand too i was thinking of uh what's her name on tiktok who does selena spooky boo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah. um i i've i've never been i don't have what is that somnobulence is that what is that the word that i'm thinking of somnambulism the, the fancy I think yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I been lit here, everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I I I've I've never been much of a sleepwalker. I have sleptwalked before, but that's not common for me. My biggest thing is I have just really bizarre, very lucid or very vivid, realistic feeling dreams to the point where sometimes I will wake up in the morning and think, was that a dream or did it really happen? Because oh, yeah. it's like hyper realistic dreams. And, and I've had dreams usually... too where like in the dream I'm looking for something and then uh-huh. I wake up and go, oh, it was a dream. But then the whole day I keep thinking, oh, yeah, I got to find that thing. I've been looking for that thing. Yeah. Um, ugh, it's so disorienting. You know what happens to me constantly is I feel really nostalgic for memories that were dreams. <laughs> <laughs> like... I had this very vivid dream of living in this awesome house in Milwaukee that it was in the city, but then if you went through the back door, (laughs) it was suddenly in the country. (laughs) (laughs) And so just very dreamlike, very fake. But often as I'm falling asleep, I'm like, I miss living there. (laughs) Mama, I think that speaks to your experience of wanting to both live on the edge of the countryside, but also in a large city. Duality, exactly. Yes, we're right back to where we started from. I think it also speaks to your fear of dentists. Uh, (laughs) But, um, so, yeah, uh, sleep paralysis. Uh, If you can uh, avoid it, don't let it happen to you. Uh, (laughs) Although, it is a really interesting story to tell, um, because it is one of those things where... um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, um, the, oh God, what is it? It, it, it? It's a documentary about sleep paralysis and I've just forgotten what it's called. Um, but it is all these people telling their sleep paralysis stories and it has like recreations of their visions. Um, and I can't watch it right before bed because the last time I watched it right before bed, I had sleep paralysis right afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so... Jay doesn't like it when I suddenly bolt up right in bed, gasping for breath, flailing. Because um, it's, it's apparently yeah, a little lie. disorienting. Yeah. I would think that'd be very soothing. <laughs> well, any final spooky thoughts from either of you? This was a wonderful spooky time episode. Just I really want to go to Summer Wind now. I know. I've I've wanted to go since I first read the story. I did not realize at the time that it had burned down. And it burned down like three months after I was born. So there was never really a possibility <laughs> of me going to the actual mansion. But yeah, I saw that um, Fox Valley Ghost Hunters who do the camping trips there, they were doing them again last year. So maybe that is something. Do they, can you go with them? Yeah. Yeah. They, they do open it to the public. I think they sell out pretty quickly, but they usually do them in the summer. So it is possible. Yeah, because I... I wouldn't want to trespass if that yeah, story they, told us anything. From what I've <laughs> yeah. from what I've heard, that particular group, one of the guys who runs the group is friends with the owner, so they have permission to do it. Just uh don't take anything from the site because that also is rumored to give you very bad luck. No, oh, so maybe what? I don't want to go. Don't trespass, don't steal. <laughs> 
Like, have you ever been to Crystal Cave? I remember there's, like, a pillar in that cave. And me and my friend immediately ran around the pillar a thousand times. Because uh, we were pretty young. And the tour guide goes, walking around it once gives you good luck, but more than once bad luck. And we already had done, like, 50 laps. <laughs> so we were like, fuck you, tour guide. You should have left Why wouldn't you have said that first? <laughs> Well, now that explains so much about your life. Just <laughs> My life has turned out so poorly. <laughs> Curse you, Crystal Caves. Ah! <laughs> well, on that note, Junko, we always uh, end the episode with the cheers. Ooh. So I'm here we coffee, go. But I can still cheers. Perfect. <laughs> Are we ready? Here we go. Slime. Spooky cheese. <laughs> <laughs>